This is Southern Arch Heretic. Shifting the burden. Who the hell am I, and why should you listen to anything I have to say? I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Before I started whatever the hell this is, I asked myself this question. Do I have anything enlightening to offer the argument regarding the existence of God or the positive and negative effects of faith and or religious belief? And why should anyone listen to anything I have to say anyway? The answer is, drumroll please. I don't know. I know I think about it an awful lot. I know I've spent much of my life pondering and attempting to answer, at least in my own mind, some of the most difficult questions. Meanwhile, I've devoted most of my professional life to the practice of persuading juries that certain facts exist or don't exist, or that certain conclusions are valid or invalid. The arguments I make at trial are shaped in part by the arena in which they're made, one controlled by rules and prescribed procedure, the criminal trial court. Through the careful questioning or cross-examination of witnesses, the prosecutors strive to develop their argument, and defense attorneys carefully try to dismantle it and or develop their specific defense. As a defense attorney, if I can make it through the proof, and have a viable argument, I feel like I have a chance. I got a chance to convince the jury that they must find for the defense. Maybe I'm an eternal optimist, or maybe my arguably inflated ego allows me to believe that when it comes to the ultimate direction of another human's life, including their freedom and sometimes existence, I mean, some states and the federal government on occasion are more than happy to kill a son of a bitch or two. having one last opportunity to try and make sense of it or convince a jury to consider my argument is worth my greatest effort and I have to believe it makes a difference. My final argument is designed to aid the jury in their understanding of the evidence presented and to persuade them that the evidence and or lack of evidence presented supports my position. Because of this, I hope to bring a compelling perspective to the God discussion. I've been an attorney practicing criminal law for almost 20 years, mostly as a defense attorney, but several years as a prosecutor as well. My practice for the last decade or so has consisted only of defending death penalty cases, other first-degree murder cases, and federal criminal cases. As a state prosecutor in the early 2010s, I worked in the child abuse unit and prosecuted mostly sex crimes against children as well as several first-degree murders involving child victims. I think my exposure to this level of depravity, uh, violence, and death on a continuous basis and the somewhat unique opportunity to 
spend time individually with victims and perpetrators, charged persons that I truly believe to be innocent, as well as individuals accused of serious crimes based on what some juries have determined to be insufficient evidence, perhaps gives me, if not unique perspective, hopefully at least interesting perspective. Since I've mostly tried homicide cases in recent years, when I refer to defenses or courtroom situations or anything law-related, unless otherwise stated, I'm most likely comparing to or referencing a homicide case. I also mostly use the pronoun he when referring to defendants. I, I find it to be most accurate, as a solid majority of my clients and the defendants I prosecuted for child abuse have been men. I'm not certain of my total number of jury trials or the total number of juries that I've played some part in selecting, but it's well more than 50. I was raised Roman Catholic in Shreveport, Louisiana, surrounded by and embraced by my mother's large Sicilian family. My paternal grandparents were very devout Catholics, as is my mother, and I was raised to be devout as well. I was an altar boy and attended 13 years of Catholic school. I distinctly remember sitting in St. John's Cathedral at the age of 16 with the rest of my high school junior class waiting for my turn to enter the confessional and thinking, what the hell am I going to say in there? Maybe I lied? Maybe disrespected my parents? Took communion without going to confession? Mm, Ate a hot dog on Friday during Lent? Mm, Wait a second. This is all bullshit. Why am I doing this? I don't really believe any of it. Maybe that was the beginning of my embrace of blasphemy and generally being a heathen. My father's family lived in rural Alabama. We visited them frequently, and I was lucky to be close with all four of my grandparents as well as the large extended families on both sides. My parents remain married to this day. My paternal great-grandfather, grandfather, and uncle were all Southern Baptist preachers. My paternal great-grandfather was the founding pastor of a small Baptist church in rural Alabama where... Both my grandfather and uncle eventually pastored as well. Although my mother's and father's families were very devout Christians, what would now most assuredly be referred to as evangelical, I distinctly remember their different denominations being a point of contention. Both families viewed the other's beliefs as foreign, but only as they related to religion, which of course was seemingly all-consuming. 
As far as family dynamics, general philosophies of life, the importance of family, general decency, etc., they were exactly the same. Same God, same book, different edition, of course, same Savior, basically same beliefs regarding the afterlife, but still foreign because of an even more acute subsection of faith that reveals itself in the form of Christian denominationalism. It happens in all religions, but I'm most familiar with American Christian denominationalism. Basically, I think denominations exist because different groups genuinely believe that, sure, we read the same book, but we read it better than you do, or God speaks to our preacher, but not your priest, or vice versa. I guess perhaps Catholics are a-Baptist and Baptists are a-Catholic, for example. I'm certain that it was these nearly indistinguishable distinctions that shoved me in the direction of religious studies. However, my desire to eat and to also provide for my young family gently nudged or better yet gently tilted the universe so that all slippery slopes slid me in the direction of law school. Prior to returning to school, I enjoyed, I mean really enjoyed, the life of a college dropout for eight years, during which I pursued a career as a touring singer-songwriter and recording artist. This means I spent many years writing songs, traveling and playing venues for very little money, although usually provided with enough party provisions to make my lack of proper accommodations seem tolerable, and bartending to pay the bills. I spent my last tour in the Northeast United States, as usual, sleeping in my car or on someone's couch, usually a good Samaritan from the show, because I didn't make enough from the venue most evenings or in tips and album sales to afford a hotel room. My wife was pregnant with our first child, and I I found it extremely difficult being away from her for extended periods, especially since there were some complications with the pregnancy. When my oldest son was born, I decided to return to school and finish my undergraduate degree. I, I eventually graduated summa cum laude from the University of Tennessee with a Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies and went on to graduate with a Doctor of Jurisprudence from the University of Tennessee College of Law. I give this background for reference because to understand the lens through which I approach the questions of religion and the existence of God, it's important to know what experience I bring to the table. I'm a believer in the scientific method and the scientific approach to understanding our universe, but I am not a scientist. My undergraduate degree is a humanities degree in religious studies. My study included the major religions and philosophies around the world as well as cults and modern religions, and so I was exposed to the origins and the anthropology of religions from different regions and cultures, as well as other philosophies and practices. I was already a non-believer regarding a creator or any other residual faith-based fact, but drawn to the study of religion and culture as a means to help understand the world around me and the people in it. 
This education was enlightening as to the cultural origins of the many religions in their different forms and the literature and traditions that these belief systems were and are based upon. I've continued my study of religion and philosophy independently since that time. I find it interesting that we don't call Christians a Muslim or a Hindu, etc., or Muslims a Christian or a Jewish. We don't actually refer to Baptists as a Catholics or Catholics as a Baptist, as suggested earlier. I should also point out that when typing the names of religions into a computer program, the autocorrect capitalizes them, but not atheism. Just a reminder that atheism is not viewed equally as the name of a religion in our usual language. It's generally not considered a proper noun. But for some reason, it's treated, although incomparable, as if it is the same when it comes to this philosophical validity argument. Although I think that the term atheist is superfluous and unneeded, pursuant to current understanding and the accepted definition of the word, I suppose an atheist is what I am. It's such a volatile term somehow especially in my neck of the woods, for a word that could be reduced to a prefix, non or un perhaps, unbeliever, unreligious, non-believer, non-religious. The real issue is that the default is theist, so there must be a prefix a. As long as the philosophical default in the world is God exists, I suppose the term atheist is apt, and maybe that's the problem I find myself confronting. I've spent most of my career challenging the state and federal government by way of making them prove the allegations they put forward beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of citizens. As a criminal defense attorney, I depend greatly upon the fact that pursuant to the secular criminal law and the rules in the United States, my clients and therefore I do not have to prove anything. My job is to challenge the allegations of those who claim to know the truth about what happened beyond reasonable doubt. They have the burden of proving the veracity of their alleged truth using reliable evidence. It seems that in the argument regarding the existence of God, the burden is reversed. For example, there are those who claim to, absolutely and without question, know the truth of our universe and existence due to the revealed secrets in a bronze or iron age holy book or because of a special relationship with a particular deity who reveals these pearls of wisdom personally to them due to their individual faith. Arguably, that last statement could apply to most that consider themselves religious or people of faith. My position is that the burden of proving that an all-powerful, invisible overlord exists should outweigh the burden of proving that he doesn't. Because religion is so ingrained in our culture, these people of faith who are confident in their knowledge of the truth regarding the universe and humanity seemingly expect individuals that challenge those faith-based allegations, you know, by requiring evidence, to prove them wrong seems like unreasonable burden shifting to me.
my purpose in this episode and in future episodes related to the judiciary, juries, justice, and faith is to attempt to organize the arguments for and against the existence of God as if it were being presented in a criminal trial setting. In this setting, the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, and the prosecutors with the burden of proof are the parties who claim to know the truth, the believers, the defendants, the parties with no burden to prove the negative, but only the objective of challenging the prosecutor's proof, are the non-believers. All rise. Hear ye, hear ye. This honorable court comes to order. The honorable judge, ethical referee, presiding. Please be seated. Please call the next case. Yes, your honor. Believers in the existence of God versus non-believers. Come to order. This is how it starts. When determining the format of whatever this episode is, I was tempted to organize it like an actual criminal trial with questions and dialogue. In effect, creating a fictional transcript and reenactment. I mean, at least I would have had something to refer to when trying to create testimony, you know, old trial transcripts. But that felt disingenuous, and I feared that it would come across as a cheesy, contrived courtroom screenplay or horrible voice acting like you just heard. By the way, if you've never read an actual trial transcript or watched an actual criminal trial, it may be worth your while to do so. Television and movie drama doesn't do it justice. I find real trial transcripts and actual criminal trial footage to be much more interesting and enlightening. You'll usually discover both sides zealously representing their positions, and in most cases, particularly those dealing with the most serious crimes, the repercussions are grave for the defendant. I don't use that word lightly. And to be fair, they're also significant for the alleged victim and the family and friends of the alleged victim, or victims of the alleged crime. Also, and importantly, it's live, baby, and unrehearsed. To me, a criminal jury trial is as close to being a word-based sport as it is a debate. There are strategies that are considered all the way down to purposeful movement and the words and tone chosen by the attorneys. But the talent comes in the ability to react to the unexpected and unplanned. I think that for many jurors, we in the courtroom are just characters in a slow-moving and boring show that they have no choice but to watch for several days or weeks. Part of being properly persuasive is performance. And this performance is mostly improvisation based upon accelerated, concentrated, and time-consuming study of the material with experts, lay witnesses, emotional breaks that happen in adversarial settings, and the questions and arguments that must be made on the fly by the attorneys, you just never know what's going to come out of someone's mouth, including your own. The earlier simulated court announcement and case title sounds more suitable for a civil case than a criminal case in the United States, in that 
The case name is not the United States versus defendant or the state versus the defendant. However, my intention is to hold the believers to the higher standard of proof required in a criminal matter. For instance, in a civil case, the burden of proof may only be a preponderance of the evidence. Both sides start at even, and if the plaintiffs, that's the term used in civil law instead of prosecutor, if they prove more likely than not the defendant is at fault, the jury can find for the plaintiff. However, the liability will be determined based upon how at fault the jury finds the defendant, so the remedy may be minimal. This is not how criminal law works. If a person is charged with a crime, violation of a federal or state criminal statute, in our secular criminal system, it is only an allegation, and he or she is presumed innocent. It's incumbent upon the U.S. government or state prosecutor that has charged said crime to prove each and every element of the alleged crime to a jury of ordinary citizens beyond a reasonable doubt. It's important to understand the difference in the burden of proof in a civil case versus a criminal case in order to understand the standard of proof I'm employing in this exercise. The purpose is to put the alleged truth that God created the universe and everything in it, including us, and that he still pays attention to us individually and gives a shit, on trial. I will be occasionally using what some might consider foul language. I am a firm believer that words are important and yet still just audible emanations to which we've decided to attach meaning. I could stand in front of a room full of people from around the world uh, for whom English is incomprehensible and with a smile softly speak a hate-filled rant with curses horrible imagery, and accusations all the while gently nodding my head up and down in an agreeable motion, and most likely the room would just nod in agreement to be polite. Words are just some sounds we decided were important. They simply cannot be inherently good or bad, so it seems as if the issue has more to do with the audience those to whom it is directed or maybe are within earshot. Now listen, I agree that certain language is unacceptable in the courtroom if the originating source is the attorney. However, in the back halls or outside of the courthouse, there are usually no words that are off limits. So I'm giving fair warning to you, the listener. I'm doing my best to pull no punches. If certain words hurt your feelings and make you cry, you should go no fucking further. <coughs> I want to address the theist's God, although some of what is addressed will also apply to a deist's God. I want to challenge the God that I grew up with, the one to whom I could pray with the hope of results, the omnipotent and omniscient, we will discuss the numerous issues with this statement later, God that helped, I guess by answering some prayers, 
my 78-year-old chain-smoking, opiate-addicted, oxygen-dependent client recover from her fourth stroke, but in his infinite and unerring wisdom, either ignoring prayers or just having a plan, struck down my 28-year-old caring, athletic, and beautiful little sister with a tumor that ripped apart her brain, tortured her for three years of radiation, chemotherapy, and surgeries, including blowing her up to almost unrecognizability as a result of the unnecessary steroids, limited her ability to communicate and recognize her loved ones, including her big brother, before ending or, I guess, stealing or, better yet, perhaps intentionally killing with premeditation her life at 31. Well, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. God must have needed her in heaven more than we needed her here. She's up there looking down on us with a perfect mind and body now. Surely she's in a better place. What? Fuck you. Prove it. Let's tee it up. Love you. Mean it.